0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Roverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is Our original sponsor, they're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards, we've got Star Wars, miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. he uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 young street and tell them aaron sent you
1: Listening to Speech Bubble, the
0: podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people! Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us at Never Sleeps Network on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Follow us on social media at speechbubblepod. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and review the show because it helps other people find us faster. With me today, we have Mike Ruth, the uncouth one. Mike Uncouth Ruth. He is a variant artist. For uh, Valiant, he worked on Quantum and Woody and, and Shadow Man. For Aftershock Comics, he's done some pretty popular baby teeth and animosity covers. He is the creator of the Canadian indie hero, of the great white north and currently he's working on a prequel series for the image comic retcon and it's called dodge so if you've been reading retcon you know who that character is and we're going to talk to you about it right now welcome mike thanks for having me it's great to have you i've known you for quite a while i've seen a little bit of your rise But uh, I don't really know a lot about your early life, so where were you born and uh, what was your growing up life like?
1: Well, um, I was born in Brampton and um, I kind of grew up different places around Southern Ontario, lived in Thornhill for a while. I spent most of my formative years growing up in St. Catharines, which was a very kind of sporty town, like everyone was playing, you know, football and hockey and wrestling and everything else and lacrosse especially. And as a kid, I never really fit in with that kind of crowd, so I was just kind of uh, the art kid, you know, the comic book reading kid and um i was lucky to have uh, found a high school when my art skills were starting to blossom and reveal themselves i had a fantastic art school with a great program and great teachers which kind of got me started and uh, i knew eventually i wanted to work in arts i don't think i realized how or you know how that would happen i think the idea of working in comics was probably too big of a dream for me to really chase it didn't seem likely that you know some small town you know kid from like St. Catharines is going to become an artist on Fantastic Four or something like that, which is funny because years later I met Leonard Kirk who ended up you know, I found out he grew up into the same high school as me, a few years older than I am grew up in St. Catharines and ended up being the artist of Fantastic Four, so I was much too old to realize that this was not too big of a dream to chase, but yeah, so I I basically just wanted to work in in illustration Um, I eventually studied at uh, Sheridan College for a few years in the late 90s uh, where I met a bunch of great people and um guys who are working in comics now during that time yeah i I learned a lot but i i think i was probably too chicken to go after a a pursuing the illustration career so ended up getting a job doing labor and just doing that kind of monkey work you know for eight bucks an hour and um It was an accident at work, actually, that led me to decide that I wanted to chase this a little more seriously. I had already amassed a student loan uh, debt from from going to college, and there I was, you know, ruining my hands doing labor for uh, peanuts. So, um, yeah, so I had this kind of like a moment where I, you know, narrowly avoided having both of my hands smashed into strawberry jam at a work site and kind of had my my epiphany moment where I walked off the job site and said, I'm going to be an illustrator or I'm going to starve to death. So what happened? And your hands almost got. Yeah, smashed. we were what putting together it? these huge uh, these huge uh, bleachers for a sporting event. I was working for a company in Oakville, and they were great guys to work for. Um, it was a huge crew of people. We were putting together this huge um, uh, set of bleachers for a big. I think it was a curling event or something like that that was happening. And it was very. It was winter. It was a lot of uh, a lot of ice on the sidewalks, and we were carrying these huge metal planks and sixty uh, foot metal planks and thirty foot metal planks, and uh, the fellow on the other end of my plank. Trip and fell and i fell forward and as i landed this steel plank just bonged off the ground off the concrete floor and it was this bell i needed to hear i just stood up and everything was clear in my life i was going to be an illustrator i was going to starve to death wow
0: yeah So what originally attracted you to illustration? Were you a comic book fan going way back? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I I learned to read reading comics when I was very young. Um, I don't remember having much as a kid, but I remember having comics. I remember a particular uh, Marvel 2-in-1 was my favorite comic as a kid. Uh, I really identified with Ben Grimm and and really clicked with that guy. So he was kind of my hero growing up. And then, yeah, comics were always a part of my life. But again it just seemed like it was an impossible thing to even think about being a comic book artist. It didn't seem like it was a real viable thing to chase after. So, um, but then I realized, you know, then, then I reached a point with my illustration career where I was doing illustrations for lots of different people. And the idea of comics still seemed too big and outside of my grasp because you know you've got to, to to my mind you had to be something special to be working on comics and I don't think I was seeing that in my work at the time so um so yeah I mean I when I finished at Sheridan in the late 90s I ended up just uh never saying no to any work and doing whatever illustration job came my way regardless of who it was for how big or small the budget was and for, spent a decade or more building a huge body of work working for big companies and small companies and you know charities and all different kinds of things yeah yeah, you did some work for like Scholastic. Yeah, I did work for Scholastic there. and uh, Rubicon Publishing in Oakville. They did a bunch of uh, books and most of the books were um, English uh, as a second language books or just essentially um, taking old uh, famous uh, English stories or or famous stories from the history and converting them into graphic novels uh, to make them easier to understand because our language has changed so much over the past few hundred years. And if a kid today in our our education system today was to pick up an original copy of Treasure Island... It he probably wouldn't understand half of it because of the amount of language difference that we have in the English language. So it was uh it was a lot of translating books like that into comic books, which was a nice way to cut your teeth on comics. I had great art direction there, produced a lot of work for them. I was producing a 44-page graphic novel every 6 weeks. Wow. Full, full color and I had to color it all my hand by hand and it was it was pretty intense, yeah. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it was intense. It was really it produced about a thousand pages of sequential art in a four-year span. Produced about fifty graphic novels in that time. None of them ended up in any comic shops, of course, because they were scholastic books and they were textbooks and things like that. But they were all comics. And they were all graphic novels. So. Were you doing that full time? Yeah, yeah. I had actually was lucky enough to land a full-time position where they let me work at home, so I was able to just get up in the morning and draw. And I was only supposed to work forty hours a week, but I was probably averaging about one hundred and eight, one hundred and twelve hours hours a week Whoa. yeah it was intense yeah never slept <laughs> gained about 100 pounds and uh over the scan of four years and uh just never left my desk and almost hobbled myself as an illustrator yeah
0: i know too like for you, your work-life balance is a big thing because there was a point more recently where you you told me that you were working as like a superintendent for a building. Yeah. And, and you sort of <laughs> had to get out of that in order to like do the comic stuff and pursue your passion. So it for sounds sure. like that balance between, you know, paying the bills and actually you know, drawing and not killing yourself has been a big thing for you.
1: Yeah, it's an ongoing thing for sure. Um, When I was working for Rubicon full time, it was great because it was just a flat rate regardless of how, you know, how hard I worked. But when it came to this recent situation um, around 2010, I lost my job uh, at Scholastic or at Rubicon rather just very suddenly. I think I found out on a Wednesday that the Friday would be my last day. It was due to the some kind of problem at their office, which led to the entire art team being laid off. And I was the only, On staff illustrator, so there I was at age 35, basically sprawling on my hands and knees, wondering what I was going to do to live. Um, My wife, thankfully, my wife Erica, had a good full-time job at the time, so she was able to kind of hold the fort up while I scrambled and figured out what I wanted to do. And it was around, yeah, it was like age 35. I decided, you know what? I I've wasted so much time thinking that the idea of becoming a comic book artist was too big and too outside my reach. If I have to start my career over again at zero. At age 35, then I'm going to chase after the things that I want. And so that's what I did. And so then I started just getting into comics by any hook or crook, you know, I'd, I'd meet comic book artists at, at, fan expo or at other small shows. And I would, I would basically offer my services as a pinup artist. Have you got a small short story I can write anything like that and just started to get in that way. So I could start producing. I mean, I had a 20 year career at that point, producing illustrations for all different kinds of people and stacks and stacks of drawings at home, but none of it was really useful material for me to get new work as a comic book artist. I had to start over again. So there's a lot of things that kind of happen around the same time. And then, yeah, since 2010, I've just been grinding nonstop trying to get in. And it was actually in December that I met Matt Nixon and um, he and I decided to uh, work on this project together. And I knew I would have to resign from my position as superintendent, which I'd been for the last eight years. And I took that job basically to pay the rent because, you know, suddenly having nothing, the opportunity came where the building I was living at, they said, hey, do you want to be the super? We don't have a super. And for the last eight years, it was miserable, awful work. where I did unbelievable labor and disgusting hideous cleanup jobs and You know, I thought for sure when I took the job out of desperation that it was going to be the thing that would doom my art career. But in fact, it was what saved my art career, because all those times I'd spend on my hands and knees, scraping hobo vomit up off the sidewalk, I'd be thinking, I can't wait to get in the studio and draw that thing that I need to draw. I have that guy that wants that sketch of Colossus or that guy that wants that saber tooth sketch or whatever. And I'd be piecing my life together that way and building my portfolio that way. So while I was washing windows and scrubbing up messes, the beast inside my head was clawing at the glass and trying. Trying to get to the drawing table, and that's kind of it was a good place to be. And then all of a sudden, the work was—I sh- had to make the work count. And any moment I got in the studio that wasn't spent cleaning up messes or dealing with tenants, it was just hammering the hardest I could in the studio and making the best impact I could.
0: I know that a lot of our listeners want to be, you know, that variant artist. They want to draw covers. Like that's sort of a dream for a lot of people. How did you get your work seen by the likes of, of Valiant and Aftershock
1: uh, Comics? Well, there's a couple different ways of uh, doing the the variant cover things. I mean, i have been fortunate because the covers I've been done I've done for the past year have, have been variants, but they've been the the kind of variants that you can get at through uh, the Diamond previews, like these are B, B covers and things like that. But there's also retailer variants, and so retailers are a huge uh, a huge support, obviously, to guys like me who who want to draw and opportunity opportunity came years ago through uh, Gotham Central Comics with Carlos. He had this A-variant program where he was doing these special limited covers for different books, and he actually got me doing a cover for Nailbiter, which uh, was coming out. It was a a series that we were all pretty excited about, drawn by Mike Henderson, um, and just unbelievable uh, work. Uh, in it and um, yeah that was an image book right? yeah yeah and it did it did an unbelievable it had an unbelievable uh run it was i think 28 or 30 issues or something but it was all fantastic anyway i i got to the great thing about that was i was working directly with image comics and i was able to work with the editors and art directors there on the project and i got to work directly with the creators of uh, Nailbiter, which was fantastic. So I got to send emails back and forth and get my sketches approved and whatnot. And then shortly after I did that, uh, Carlos had another opportunity for me to do a cover for The Wicked and The Divine, which was the uh, Kieran Gillen and uh, Jamie McKelvey book that uh, has been immensely popular. So I ended up doing a variant cover for that. And I got to work directly with uh, Kieran Gillen on that, which was kind of amazing to shoot emails back and forth and get, send sketches off of him and get his feedback on them so yeah that was that was amazing and then after that those two were pretty locked in and then I ended up getting a call randomly one day to do a Red Sonya and Conan cover for a shop uh, 1811 Comics in Buffalo and so these retailer opportunities would come and then uh, I did one cover for Animosity a new series that was coming out for Aftershock and that got the attention of the guys at Aftershock and after that they were calling me directly to do Covers for them, so I did. Uh, I think I think nine or ten covers for Animosity, but I ended up doing covers for um, Blood Blister. I did four covers for Baby Teeth, um, Unholy Grail, Pestilence. Um, yeah, I've been lucky. Uh, yeah, and. All from, like, people getting to know you from the retailer. Pretty much, yeah, so. and, I, and, I, and I think some of it, too, had to do with around the time Night Nailbiter and uh, Wicked and Divine came out in some of those books, I was touring a lot. I was probably doing 25 Comic-Cons per year, and a lot of them were in the States, so I was doing, you know, Heroes uh, in Charlotte. I was doing New York Comic-Con, and, I mean, they're just uh, staggeringly big shows, and I was able to meet some great people there and go to some of those parties and, and, and make some make some connections that way. So there's definitely a tremendous value in going to the big shows uh, with your work and, and making sure that they can put your face to that name. My first pinup for uh, that I got published for Image was years ago in the first Luther Strode series for Justin and Jordan, and I simply read the first issue of Luther Strode, loved it, sent Justin an email because they had his email at the back of the comic, and he emailed me back and said we'd love a pinup. So I just kind of started putting my nose in wherever whether it was asked for or not. If I if I liked the book, like Head is another book that I love, Andrew McLean, I jumped in and said, hey, can I do do a pinup and you know and it shows you end up getting showed up in the book now pinups don't give you the kind of industry credit that you you know covers or or interior work will give you obviously. right
0: because they're basically like fan art in the back of the essentially book now, fan so, art yeah, yeah.
1: but it, but it is a nice way because very often especially with the image books you know the creators will do a little write up about you or they'll put a little uh, you know they'll, they'll at you or whatever and um and that's just a great you know a great way to reach out to people and uh Connect with people, yeah.
0: That's a good trick, man. Yeah. That's a good
1: trick. So when you're working
0: with, uh, you know, really great artists like Karen Gillan, what do you learn from corresponding with these guys?
1: Well, very often I'm dealing with other people's, oh, in, in pretty much every case, I'm dealing with other people's characters and other people's properties. So for me, it's an opportunity to make sure I'm going to be handed their toys and, and, and treating them, you know, delicately and then handing them back and, you know, not, not doing anything too outrageous or too out of control. So, and very often I'm working with limited... Um, amounts of material so if a variant cover is coming out um i might have a pdf of the comic to, to read i might have a pdf of the comic of just the artwork so i'll have a sense of what the characters look like and i might just have to come up with a composition based on that but yeah we're getting you know interesting working with kieran gillen was that he's a you know he's overseas of course in the uk so we had this time differential thing to worry about so i'd send roughs off and i'd need to get the confirmation that i can start inking or coloring and um and i'd have to wait you know six hours for him to wake up or whatever and we had this we had miscued a few times but he he loved what I did and then I colored it and he decided he didn't like my colors so he was very honest with me and it was it was very it was good feedback to get real professional feedback that way yeah
0: nice and I bet that all that feedback sort of helps you hone your artwork in general right yeah
1: well i mean you know everyone wants different things and like i said i i never really had when i graduated at sheridan i never really felt like i had a definitive style a lot of guys finish a lot of artists finish school with a definitive style that's very very much what they ride throughout their career i finished sheridan college it looked like 10 different people had made my portfolio i I didn't know what i wanted to do i really wanted to do comics and 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 vikings and monsters and sci-fi and sword and sorcery but i had been steered i had that almost beaten out of me at sheridan in college and uh and so i kind of finished school without really a sense of where i fit in but the nice thing about that was meant that i I could work for anybody without without any any fear so i could work for i could do cute things for like the easter seals parade or i could do something really horrific for a horror magazine or a or a fanzine for a you know role-playing game or something like that um so yeah i just you know Sorry, I probably lost track of what I was talking about there, but, uh, um, yeah, it's just grinding it out. Yeah, basically just never saying no to an opportunity. And, um, you know, a lot of people like to argue with artists and like a lot of people will give the advice and never work for exposure and never work for free and, and, and I and I don't I certainly don't want anyone to work for free, but I, I want people to recognize the value and opportunity. And um, there's been many times in my life when I have worked for exposure, quote unquote, exposure, and that's a bad thing to do. But if it landed me ten cover gigs in a row afterwards that paid, then I don't think it was a bad thing to do. If I do an illustrated story for a magazine and they like the illustration I do for their story so much that they decide to make it a cover. Then it doesn't matter that I only got paid ten bucks for that illustration. Now it's the cover of the magazine. Right. So I would, I would, I would see value in these things, and this would produce. This is what produced the body of work that got me to where I am now. Right, and you're extremely hardworking. Like, I just never shut it off. I, I uh, I've been feeling a little burnt out lately. I'll be honest, because I'm, I am working on a full time, like full time gig now, drawing this comic, and it's a different set of brain muscles than just having to work out a cover. When you got a cover or two to do a month, if I'm lucky enough to have a cover or two to do a month for a company those are two compositions that i have to work out with a comic book page you have 150 problems on every page and uh, coming from a from a cover artist or an illustrator standpoint as opposed to a a sequential artist standpoint it's just a different set of muscles so i've i've really had a i've really been heavily challenged the last few months it's been it's been good though
0: and at some point you've found time to Create a character yourself. I mean, I don't know if many people know this because, you know, there there are different writers involved and different artists involved now, but you're the creator of Auric of the Great White North, who's one of the sort of iconic indie characters for Canadian comics you know right? it, how did that happen
1: well that's something I'm you know I'm, I'm secretly kind of proud of because I really had no idea the character was going to take on the life that it did I'm not sure Davis Dewsbury and Andrew Thomas are the two guys who've made the comic and there's been a million guys who've done variant covers and I I just I just love what they're doing with it it's it's fun it's it's light it's Canadian um it, I just I just love what they're doing but for me uh, I was asked to create a mascot for the Timmins comic-con uh which at the time I think was called the Northern Ontario Expo, and um, they had it at a, at a venue that was affiliated with the Lions Club. And I don't think that the show was affiliated with the Lions Club anymore, but I knew the guy that I was dealing with, uh, Jason Dennis, was a huge Green Arrow fan. Um, he knew that I was a big Conan fan, and um, they were having it at the Lions Club. So I just basically put those three things in the blender, and out came Orca the Great White North. I didn't give him that name. It was actually a, a fan contest that they had for the Northern Ontario Expo. Expo. People would vote on the name, and Orc I think is the one that won. But um, it's just funny, you know. I, I I think if I had known the character was going to be. Uh was going to catch on and be this big canadian fun thing I, I would have probably chose a canadian animal instead of a lion but uh the lion works uh and they, they're having fun with it and they you know the, the beast uh, idea behind uh, the transformation of auric i think is one that can be interpreted different ways so you know you might see him as a lion but someone else might see him as something else and uh yeah just great fun i'm glad those guys are having a blast with that character
0: right and lions are like super regal characters and, yeah you know, yeah when when andrew thomas was on on speech bubble a few episodes back he explained uh, his part of the creation mm-hmm. how it went from you know being just a mascot of a convention to now like an ongoing uh, series so. yeah they've done some awesome stuff with the character yeah, yeah it's pre- good fun pretty cool so i want to get into what you're working on now sure it is a prequel to Uh, retcon for those who don't know retcon is basically like a paramilitary division of like the u.s military and they're you know like any uh you know sort of Division uh, working in like Afghanistan and Iraq,
1: except that they go after like paranormal activity. Yeah. Right? Essentially, things that have been weaponized, unnatural things in the earth that have been weaponized into something that can harm entire cities. So, um, in, in the first Dodge series, the first issue of Dodge, um, which takes place in present day, um, Dodge is essentially spilling his guts at what is essentially a, an, an AA meeting. He's unburdening himself of his past and he reveals a photograph where he and his crew of guys were sent to, um, you know, um, sent to, I think Iraq or Afghanistan to search for WMDs, but of course they didn't find any WMDs, but what what did what, what they had instead, I think it's Saddam or whatever dictator in the story, had a real live genie that he was using to threaten the world with, and so they, right. they go to take out the genie is essentially what the, so they would do missions like that, so yeah, so um, I, I read Retcon, it's drawn by, it's written by Matt Nixon and it's drawn by Toby Cypress and it's just unbelievable Unbelievably enjoyable comic book. Uh, I, I read them as they came out, but then the collected edition, I believe, is available now, and it's just a beautiful—it's just a beautiful thing to sit down and read. So much fun.
0: Yeah, it was amazing. Like I read it, you know, those first couple pages. Where uh, you know he he spills his guts out. I won't tell you what happens in Retcon number one, but it's going to factor in huge For sure. in Dodge, which is the prequel. That's all about uh, the Dodge character, yeah. Chris that the you're Animal Dodge, on, yeah,
1: right? yeah. Chris the Animal Dodge. So the story that I'm drawing takes place a, a few decades before uh, Retcon, and um, yeah, there's just some great stuff. Matt's taken us on a to a pretty interesting place. I I wasn't sure when he first pitched the book the pitch was very brief and it was very exciting uh, it just sounded like a high octane kind of like tribute to those 80s adventure movies those, those uh, you know like Commando or Predator or things like that but I'm working on the second issue right now and man, he is doing some awesome weird stuff which I was not expecting so it's, it's, every, it's just one of those, I'm very lucky because while I, I, I sometimes have a lot of self-doubt about my productivity or my ability to, to get pages done quickly uh, and, and wrestling with that inner, that inner illustrator that wants to polish and noodle everything like a cover even though I'm drawing pages um, while that's happening um, I read the script every day like I reread the script that I'm drawing every morning and I and I find myself on the edge of my seat as I read it every time. There's something really exciting that he's doing here and I'm, I'm just, I feel so unbelievably lucky to be the guy who's drawing this book. I think I would have kicked myself if I had turned the job down and um, at the time I, I wasn't sure I could take the job on when I was the super because it was a 24-7 commitment and hard to manage deadlines when you you know, can lose an entire week to a plumbing issue or something. Yeah. When I, when I first
0: talked to you, you were, you were still working as a
1: superintendent while you were doing this book. Yeah. It really slowed down the first issue of the book. The first issue probably took me four times longer than it should have mainly because I had resigned in January. I gave them until the first of March to take over my, like to replace my position at the building. And on the first of March, the new guy came and checked out the property and then handed me the keys back and said, nope I can't do the job and so I suddenly was in this big panic because I was already kind of essentially late with my first book and feeling very beaten up by that Um, but had to maintain the safety of the building because I live at the building it was it was not about me so much as maintaining the safety for all the other tenants that I've become friends with over the last you know decade or so so someone had to rise up and the company's very small and they didn't have an end to replace me so I ended up having to do the job until the middle of May so I resigned in january and i basically maintained the job until the middle of may which um really really hurt my productivity but you know it, it kind of broke me and on the wheel a little bit like i i um you know, I had to put those hours in and get that work done regardless. So, um, now I've been replaced by a guy who's basically like, he basically looks like Luke Cage. Like he's this huge, big muscle bound giant dude and he can handle the job better than I can. So I'm, I feel I'm, I'm in a much more relaxed place than when I met you, when I saw you last time in May, uh, was it May? It was at the Paradise Comics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm in a totally different headspace (laughs) than when I talked to you that day. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. So Through it all, through all this adversity that you've been going
1: through, uh, was Matt really understanding? Like, Oh, Matt's been amazing. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. Uh, you know, I couldn't say enough good about the guy. And it's funny, I've never met him in person. Like, it's one of these things where, um, you know, he just, uh, I guess he saw my work and decided to reach out to Aftershock about, uh, you know, about hiring me for the work. And they Aftershock said, well, you know, Mike's a freelancer for us. Go ahead and ask him yourself. And so Matt pitched the book to me and I, I thought about it. And um, yeah, we, we worked out some terms. And yeah, I I couldn't be happier. Uh, I I just don't want to let him down. So to me, I feel like I... um I'm not fast enough. I'm not good enough, but uh, I'm getting better with every page. And um the stuff he's having me draw on this second issue is so much closer to what I want to do and the kind of stories I want to tell. I had no idea he was going here, So I'm super excited because it's just a lot of monster fighting and a lot of just a lot of awesome tooth and nail kind of, you know, battles I get to draw,
0: yeah,, I mean, looking at you now, I mean, people can't see you, but you look kind of like, punk rocker-ish you got the big <laughs> you got the big red beard and stuff you're into like conan the barbarian and stuff you're a bit you're a bit of a metalhead right yeah i think so, so. those it's... are the kinds of things that you're kind of into yeah i
1: mean i've always loved that kind of i mean conan the barbarian to me the 1982 uh, original film is like cinematic perfection but i mean i yeah i'm a big like black sabbath guy and you know kind of like the motorhead and the classic metal stuff. But uh, yeah, it's always been a thing that's flavored the kind of work that I do for sure. I always wanted to work for heavy metal. Um, I, I really, really love that magazine and uh, love the guys whose work could show up in that magazine. So yeah, I'd always kind of seek out that kind of work. Uh, my first published work in that direction was doing stuff for Warpstone magazine, which was a fanzine for the Warhammer fantasy role-playing uh, game system. Which um, has largely been forgotten in the shadow of the 40k stuff, but um, but yeah, it was great to just draw goblins and wool you know, werewolves and dwarves and minotaurs and things like that for a game system and uh, and really cut my teeth doing that. That's what I love to do. That's where I'm at my happiest. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. That's awesome. So now that you're you know you're working on this book and like you've. You sort of achieved what you wanted to achieve. You mentioned that you know going from a cover artist to a sequential artist works different muscles. Yeah. Can you expand on what kind of muscles those are?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I've been lucky enough to take a few of Ty Templeton's classes and um, his boot camp class and his comic layout class, and uh, he really tries to get the idea across that you know you have to tell a story, you have to move the eyeball through the page, you know, you have to get from point A to point B, and when you're an illustrator, you just have to. Try try to tell the whole story with one picture if you're doing a cover or something like that so I always liked covers when I was a kid on comic books that actually showed something that would happen inside the comic so I'd always try to keep my sensibilities of you know doing a cover to, to reflect that I'd always get let down if you'd get some awesome cover with this cool fight scene on the front and then the comic is just talking heads and the fight is is only supposed it's never never happens um, that kind of stuff so the difference in and yeah the difference is really just about um, it's about time and efficiency and and simplicity and um, I render everything in an ink wash style um, which is great for covers and it's kind of been the definitive look of my work for the past decade or so but it's a style that doesn't necessarily lend itself well uh, in terms of speed and deadline um, sensibilities to interior work um, so I've been trying to find some kind of middle ground there and ultimately I just decided to go back to doing what I do which is ink and wash so I've been inking what so this dodge book is going to be ink and wash the entire thing with uh, you know a heavy emphasis on on ink for sure but it's been yeah it's been a, a a bit of a shift in gears because like i said with a cover you only got one problem to solve you want an impactful image that's going to catch the eye of the person walking by the bookshelf the cover sells the book that's the only job that cover has to do um the interiors tell a different story um you know the interiors you have to make people accept that they are where you tell them they are and you know you might have a case where you have to draw a very complex uh, architecture to set a setting and, you know, you might spend four days working out one panel on one page because you're just not, that's just not a skill set that's well flexed or well, well modeled. And so you struggle a little bit in some of those areas. Um, but the ironic and funny thing is that, you know, the comic book reader is the guy who's going to flip the page and give that one panel less than a second of, of a glance as he reads the word bubbles and turns the page. So the, I don't think anyone really realizes the amount of effort that goes into making a comic book, especially one that might have a more realistic tone or, uh, require a little bit more rendering or a little bit more, um, you know, uh, not photographic art, but, you know, a little bit closer to reality than, you know, say something like Garfield or or whatever, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah. But then at least when you're stuck, you can always talk to the writer and get clear. Oh yeah. No, he's Uh, been
1: amazing. Like I've had ideas in mid shot where he's, he's written something. And I mean, I've, I, like I said, I just enjoy reading the script so much. Um, but there's the occasional scene where I think, well, I can make this a little bit easier for me if I, you know, adjust this angle or if I adjust this and then I usually just bounce it off of him and he's usually cool with it. Um, so we have, yeah, we've, we've gotten along really well that way. I think he just, as long as I'm happy with the work, I think he's going to be happy with the work. So my big job has been trying to get happy with the work. Uh, trying to feel like it's the best version of what I can do and and sometimes and unfortunately in comics I think because it is a different set of focus and a different amount of time commitment you have to just let some things go and let some things just drop away and be less important and um, it's, just, it's just been a bit of a challenge for me to learn that when I was working for Scholastic for those years everything I did was spoon fed they would hand me a finished PDF with the boxes already drawn and they would give me a sense of what word bubbles had to be or what you know speech balloons had to be be in there and um it would be a a case of uh you know, basically just filling in the boxes with whatever they told me to draw. Right. When it's more self directed, um, you know, I can have a little bit more room to flex and have some fun. And, uh, and uh, you know, Matt's challenged me. He's, he's had me draw some things that I would normally hide under the bed uh, rather than draw because they're hard to draw. <laughs> but, um, but it's actually been really good. I'm, I'm watching myself become a better illustrator uh, basically with every page. What used to be the hardest things for you to draw? Um, well, anything involving like technical stuff. Like I'm, re- I paint with a brush. I do everything with a brush. So even something like, you know, doing robots or, 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 you know, vehicles or things like that can be very challenging boats. I remember I used to struggle making boats, uh, like long ships and submarines and things like that. look like they were in the water or on the water. Um, but you know, you, you kind of grow as you, you know, you learn and you grow, um, Horses is always typically the thing that a lot of artists say is the hardest thing. Um, I don't have a problem with horses now. I do dread when I have to draw them a little bit because it's uh, to me there's no drawing system that makes any kind of human sense to draw a horse. You just have to, I think, have good reference in some cases. Um, my heroes, guys like Joe Jusco and John Buscema and you know Paul Chadwick and all these guys can just draw horses all day long like they make it look easy. But so those those things can be challenging. This book has been challenging for me for the military equipment. Because because like I said, I use a brush. It doesn't lend itself well to drawing, you know, machine guns or engines or things like that. So, so there's been a little bit of a learning curve there.
0: Cool, cool. But man, I'm, I'm so glad. I, I'm, I'm going to be so buying this when it comes
1: out. Oh, thanks, sure. man. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping to have some information about that soon. I know... Um, um, it's uh, I should have some solicitation information for you eventually. So if uh, you know, if I get more news after we finish this interview and I can pop it in, I will. Definitely, for sure, man. Uh, one last thing
0: I wanted to talk to you about over this last week. One of your, I know you're a big wrestling fan, and and one of your heroes, uh, Jim the Anvil, Night passed away. We have a wrestling show on Never Sleeps Network with Casey Corbin talking wrestling, and I know that he's a big. Uh, uh, Jim, the annual nine were a fan. But uh, I was looking at your Facebook over this past week and you have some pretty intimate photos with, with the Anvil. So, is yeah. <laughs> there a story around that? You've met him a few times. I have, right? I
1: have. I've been, uh, I've been very lucky to meet him. And, um, it, it, you know, we all, we all learn about these wrestlers and these these guys, these performers and people on TV. And, you know, they have their TV life and then they have their life outside. And, you know, some of those stories are kind of dark and some of them go we'll get in the newspaper for the wrong reasons and whatnot. And Jim the Anvil Neidhart was uh, his passing really hurt this week. Um, It was a really hard one for me. It was as hard as Macho Man or as hard as Roddy Piper, guys that I... Particularly was close to but but Jim Knightheart was my all-time number one and the reason was when I was a kid I, I simply worshiped the ground the white guy worked on when I was a kid. I wanted to be Jim Neidhart I I you know would wear pink and black. I I, I wish I could grow beard in grade five uh, I had the same haircut as Jim. I still have the same haircut as Jim I um the guy was just my hero, and uh, 1999, I think I had just finished up at Sheridan College, and some friends of mine wanted to go to a wrestling event um, in uh, Scarborough. It was at a place called Cactus Pete's, which I don't even know if it's still there or not. But we all went out to Cactus Pete's, and we were there to actually see Demolition uh, Axe versus uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine, and both of those guys canceled. When I got to the show, there was a note on the door saying that both those guys had canceled. And I I was pretty pissed off, you know, but I walked in the bar. And they're sitting at the bar wearing pink and black, wearing the same leather jacket as me, wearing the same beard that I had on at the moment is Jim the Anvil Neidhart. And the 10 year old and me just went into a state of screaming delirium. And I didn't know what to say. I, I walked up to him and I just couldn't believe he was there. I just walked up and I think I stammered out the word something like, uh, oh, my God, I wanted to be you, you know, and uh, he reached over. I'll never forget. I'll never forget this. He reached over and he grabbed me by the beard and he pulled my face close to his and he said... I remember when mine used to look like that because I had this huge red beard at the time and it was shaved actually like a goatee like his. I got a full beard now, but mine was more of a goatee then, but it was quite long. It was like halfway to my belly button and uh, he grabbed it and pulled it over and because uh, he had had his beard trimmed down quite short and uh, we had this great conversation and I was lucky. There was this other fellow that was at the bar who I never got his name. I never met him. He was like, you got anything for the anvil to sign? And I said, no, nah, I don't have anything, man. I just came here with my wallet and he pulled out this old WWF like kind of baseball card style. I remember, I don't know if you remember those, they had packs of cards back when we yeah, were kids and he pulled out the Jim Neidhart card and I got that autographed and I've got that in some special place at home. But the most special thing about that evening was uh, Jim was going to be in the battle Royal. That evening was the second main event. The first, the, the final main event was actually like a, a mixed tag team match with uh, Missy Hyatt. And I believe the squeegee kid who was kind of a Toronto indie God at the time in the late nineties, uh, he was about 140 pounds soaking wet but he was everyone loved to cheer for the squeegee kid anyway Jim Neidhart was in this battle royal and he murdered everybody in the battle royal and I'm watching the match and I'm in this crowd in this bar and all of a sudden I hear I feel this big hand slap me on the back and I turn around and there's Jim Neidhart fresh from the battle royal he came out in the crowd to find me and he stood with me and the two of us hung out drinking and and cheering on the wrestling show all night long (laughs) I never had. I can't remember having more fun in my life uh, at that time, and uh, it just seemed so surreal. The next day, it all felt like a dream, and that was the last I saw him uh, for for about 15 years. And then I saw him again when I was a guest at a I think it was the uh, kind of like an Oakville Comic Con thing that they had in Oakville uh, at one of the holiday in there, and um, and Jim Neidhart was the guest there. It was supposed to be Jim Neidhart and Rob Leifeld. Liefeld canceled, but Jim Neidhart showed up, and I sat there across from Jim Neidhart, and we got to chat again. And I got my picture taken with him again. And I don't think Jim was in very good shape that day. He was, I think he was having a lot of trouble with pain at that time. Um, But, uh, but we still had a chat. He wasn't, he wasn't in the mood to do the laugh, unfortunately (laughs) for anybody. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was just amazing to, to meet him. And yeah. Did he remember you from the first time? He kind of did. I think he kind of did. I asked him if he remembered. I said, remember that night in Scarborough? It was about 15 years ago. I don't, I'm not surprised if you don't, but we had, we tore up the town. It was a good time and he kind of laughed and I think he like I said I think he was dealing with some pain at the time and he said oh was that in was that in New York City I said no no that was in Scarborough and uh, that's kind of where the conversation went he was kind of foggy that day but uh, I didn't care it was uh, that'll just stand out as a tremendous memory for me and I, I, I don't think Jim I, I hope he did But I don't think he ever knew how much he meant To uh, so many uh, wrestling fans Out there the fact that he's not in the Hall of Fame is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a Tragedy um, but then to me This is a whole other podcast Aaron but To me the WWF Hall of Fame Is the biggest tragedy in wrestling history And um, you know I'll talk about that again someday but there's guys Who should be in there and Jim Neidhart certainly one of them
0: Well I'll, uh, I'll pass Casey your name if Yeah you yeah guys if you're a Comic fan you're probably a wrestling fan too so check out the Talking Wrestling podcast on Never com. I'm sure we'll get Mike on there at some point. I would love to. And I'm sure that they'll, they'll knock heads at, at some point. <laughs> but until then, uh, I got to say, see you guys later. We'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thank you.
1: Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network.
0: This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and The Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.